0: We're in Matthew chapter 16, an incredible chapter. If you were here on Sunday, we launched into it a little bit. Hold on one second. We launched into it a little bit. Um, We'll try to pick up the loose ends and move through it today. I, I see this chapter as Jesus really moving into mission where he's saying, this is what I came to do. This is what I came to launch. Here's what it's about. Here's how you move personally into maturity as well. So it's just a fantastic chapter. And it begins really with a conflict. It begins with this group that has decided, they decided back in chapter 12, we're gonna kill this guy. We're gonna kill him. And so now they're actually testing him and trying to figure out how do we kill him? What are we gonna need to do to carry out the plan that we already have. So in the first four verses, I call it the the demand for proof. They come to Jesus, and they demand some proof. So here's what happens. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to test him. It's a dishonest question, really. You ever had people ask that of you? They ask you a question because they know your answer, and they're trying to trap you. That's what these guys are doing. And they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. And he answered them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy. Today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. And evil... An adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except for the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. In this chapter, we have a very strange grouping. We've had the Pharisees come by themselves. We've had the Pharisees with the scribes come, and they fit. But in chapter 16, we have the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They are strange bedfellows, right? They don't belong together. This would be like, it's like just recently, there was a real strange couple of bedfellows. It was Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump, right? Now, why did they unite in one cause? They had a common enemy, Named Hillary, Hillary Clinton, right? They both were kind of attacking her from different sides. So they kind of united in one thing because they had a common enemy. That's what these two are. They are far apart on the spectrum. The Pharisees, here's what they were they believed in miracles, they believed in angels, they believed in demons, they believed in the scriptures, the Torah as well as the prophets, as well as what we call Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. They believed it all, right? In addition to that, the Pharisees believed in what was called the oral law. And the reason why they said there's not just the law, there's this other thing, is is because if you read Exodus 24, it says that Moses received the law, the Torah. We talked about that last week. The Torah meant to Jews, the first five books of the Bible, he received the Torah and the commandments. And so the rabbi said, well, what were the commandments? Well, linked to the commandments was the oral law. It was all these explanations that was passed down generation to generation from mouth to mouth, from dad to son, from mom to daughter. It was the oral law. It was not codified or written down until 200 AD, but at this time it's alive and well. And they, they held the oral law to the same height as the Torah. So they kind of believed everything. We call that oral law today the Mishnah. It's the writing down of the oral law took, took place in 200 AD. So you've got the Pharisees. They just believed everything. The Sadducees were very different. They, only, they didn't accept the prophets or Psalms or Job or Ecclesiastes or Proverbs, just the five books of Moses. They said, that's it. They didn't believe in demons or angels or miracles, right? Very different on the scale. To me, it'd be like the Pentecostals are the Pharisees and the cessationists are the Sadducees. Just absolutely different theologically. Very, very, very strange bedfellows. But right now, they have one common enemy. So the Sadducees at this time, the Pharisees need them because the Sadducees had bought... The high priesthood. So they were now running the priesthood. It was no longer Levitical. It was no longer the sons of Aaron. It was the Sadducees that actually purchased it and now we're selling it out essentially, using it for profit. So they're the power group. And then the Pharisees were the religious group. They had all the religious kind of, they had the ear of the people. They really needed each other if they were going to carry out their plan to kill Jesus. So they know we got to get together on this. So they come. And they say, show us a sign, Jesus, from heaven. Now, why would they say that? They're thinking back in their mind to a prophet named Elijah, who took 450 fake prophets up on this mountain, and they had a discussion. Who's God? Is it Baal, or is it Yahweh? Well, here's how we'll solve this. Call for a sign from heaven. Fire from heaven. So, What they were saying is, we're like Elijah, and you're like the 450 fake prophets, and we're calling for a sign. Show us a sign. And so what does Jesus do? He talks about the weather. Just classic Jesus. (laughs) Let's talk about the weather now. Let's talk about something we agree on. We don't agree on politics or on religion, so let's talk about the weather. But he says something fascinating about the weather, doesn't he? We have the same saying today, don't we? Red sky at night is a sailor's delight. Red sky in the morning, sailor take warning. Same exact thing today. Jesus, though, here's what he does. He says you can take the same sign, a red sky, and you can interpret it for two very different conclusions. So I'm not giving you an answer. He knew this. He knew no matter what he said, damned if he did, damned if he didn't right? The Pharisees would say, if he showed a sign from heaven, it's demonic. They'd already said that about him. He does his works by the power of the devil. So even if he did something, they'd say it was demonic. The Sadducees would say, it's a fake. He's somehow tricking us. He's a fraudster. Jesus knew there's no way. This is a lose-lose situation. These two groups missed Jesus because they'd already made up their mind about him. And so Jesus says, I'm not going to play that game. I'm going to tell you about the weather, and then I'm going to leave you, and I'm going to say this one thing. I'm going to give you the sign of Jonah, and then he leaves. What a strange person for Jesus to compare himself to, right? Jonah, good guy, or bad guy? I don't know, you know? <laughs> I don't know. Go here. Now I'm not going. <laughs> All right? Get thrown into the belly of a whale. Go to Nineveh. When you go to Nineveh, he preaches eight words. When they repent, he gets mad at God, right? He doesn't like people. He's mad at God, and he disobeys God. And Jesus says, it's the sign of Jonah I'll give you. He doesn't explain it, doesn't give them any more information. To them, they're just like, oh, we knew it. He's like Jonah, disobedient, doesn't like people, mad at God. And Jesus does not explain it. It's fascinating to me. It's the second time he said this. Both times, in Matthew, he does not explain himself. It is fascinating to me. So he just leaves, just leaves, and that's it. Because miracles, Jesus, God, rarely does miracles to demonstrate who he is. Sometimes, but rarely. Most often, Jesus, God, does miracles because he cares about people. You're hungry. Let me feed you. You have demons, let me get them out of you. You're crippled, let me heal you. You're dead, let me resurrect you. Most often, the miracles in the Bible are always God demonstrating his care for people. This is not what I intended. I did not intend you to die or to be maimed or to be demon possessed. Let me reverse that because in my kingdom, these things will not happen. Very rarely does God say, I'm doing this miracle to prove to you who I am. He does it a couple times, but it is the exception. So Jesus here, I'm not going to give you that. And so the Pharisees and Sadducees are like, whoa, what just happened? He told us about the weather and then he left. Something important happened and we missed it. Well, Jesus now will explain what's up. So in verses 5 through 12, I call it their problem. What was the problem that Jesus perceived in them and was pointing out that we better take note of because he says it's an evil and adulterous generation that does what these two groups are doing. So verse 5. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. <laughs> but Jesus, aware of this, said, Oh, you a little faith. Why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? (laughs) Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. I just love that. So what's their problem? The disciples have a problem. Their problem is verse 9. Do you not yet perceive? Can't you hear what I'm saying? Don't you know what I'm talking about? I read this study today, and it said 80% of what we hear is perception and not what the person is saying. Isn't that crazy? 80%. So number one marriage counseling thing that I do, I do this all the time. You're snickering already. Yeah, (laughs) because it's such a problem. And I got it actually from doing premarital counseling, because I always ask the couple when they come in a couple of questions. One of them is, why do you guys get married? Why did you decide he's the guy? Why did you decide she's the woman? Top three for the gal every time is this. He is the first guy that ever understood me. Men, is that true? <laughs> no, it is not true. We do not understand women. We will not understand women. Why did she think, though, why do these gals think that their fiancés understand them? There it is. He listened. That was it. Oh, nodded his head. Yeah, all right. Time to get something to eat? Okay, let's go. That's it. And and you win right there. Just listening and like nodding your head, you win. But something happens after you get married, you stop doing that, right? And then things break down. So I almost always take husbands and wives to James 119. It says this, be slow to speak, quick to listen, and slow to wrath. The reason why you're getting quick to wrath Is probably because you're missing one of those two. You're not slow to speak, and you're not quick to listen. And so then you get mad. So I tell the husbands this. I tell the wives this. This is what it means to be slow to speak. When the other person's mouth is moving, yours is not. Right? It's just that simple. When it stops moving, you say this, husband. You say this to your wife. I think I heard you say. And then summarize. Now, why do you do that? 80% is perception, right? Number one, yeah, you're showing, hey, I listened to you. Number two, you probably didn't hear right. So it gives your wife a chance to say, I didn't say that. What in the world? This is what I said. So that feedback loop is huge because we hear from our wives or we hear from our husbands years and years of background. So whatever they're saying is no longer what they're saying, but it comes with, 10, 15, 20 years of baggage. And so we pick out certain phrases, the 20%, and then we'll center in on those and beat each other up for a while. When the fight is really not even necessary, if you just took James' simple advice, be slow to speak, quick to listen. Hey, honey, I think you said this. No, I did not say that. Oh, well, tell me what you said. This is what I said. Oh, well, that makes sense. No problem. No fight. No anger. Right? The problem with these guys, they're doing the exact Same thing to Jesus, right? He's mad at us because we didn't bring any bread. Now, what is that called? When someone talks about something else, but they're really mad about this at you. Anybody know what that's called? It's a term, passive-aggressive. That's passive aggressiveness, where you might be in the company of somebody, and you choose this kind of random example over here to, to take your aggression out passively on this person, like telling them a story where they're really the character, and you're like, oh, I hate this over here, and you're really telling them that you hate them. They think Jesus is passive aggressive. So he's like, what in the world? I'm not passive aggressive. If I was worried about bread, I would have told you straight up, why didn't you bring the bread? I'm not that kind of guy. But because they had this wrong understanding of Jesus, they heard him wrong. How often do we have an incorrect understanding of God? Where we see God as something he really is not. Angry, wrathful, ready to crush us. Mad at any kind of mistake we make. Like a cosmic Santa Claus checking his list twice, seeing who's naughty and nice, and give us a lump of coal. I think we're just like these disciples. The whole Old Testament is God being misunderstood. And so finally he says, listen, I will come wrap myself in flesh and live among you so you can stop having the wrong impressions of me. Stop thinking I'm something I am not. Remember the way I declared myself, Exodus 34, 6 and 7. That's who I am. Compassionate, loving, slow to anger, right? That's who I am we got to be careful of doing the same thing to God. They perceived it, and they made Jesus it, just like that. So Jesus now begins to unwrap what he wants to unwrap. And so he says twice the same phrase, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. What is that leaven? Theologically, these two groups are as far apart as they can be. Pentecostals, cessationists, right? Bernie Sanders, Trump. They're as far apart as they can be. So people start saying, well, it's legalism for the Pharisees and it's liberalism for the Sadducees, and that's where they disagree. What is it then? What do they agree on? What what have they done in this chapter that might be the leaven? I think it's verse 1. They came to test him. To show them a sign Jesus responds, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. what is the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees seeking a sign? God prove yourself to me God I demand you show up in the way that I want you to show up prove it. the disciples do it over and over to Jesus in John fourteen verse eight you this is the night of his betrayal he has been with his disciples. Three and a half years, tons of miracles, tons of healings, all kinds of things. And what does Philip say to Jesus on that last day? Show us the Father, and it'll suffice. One more sign, Jesus. And what does Jesus do? Oh, my goodness. Have I been with you so long? Don't you know that I and the Father are one? Don't you know if you've seen me, you've seen the Father? Are you really going to ask for one more sign? But which one of us in this room has not struggled with that same thing. God, just show yourself to me. There's a term for it, a theological term. It's called the hiddenness of God. Like we all struggle with the hiddenness of God. God, why didn't you just show me? Why didn't you just give me proof? Why couldn't you just showed up in this one area, done one thing for me? So I would know who you are. We're exactly like these disciples. We're exactly like the Pharisees and said, just give me one sign and then I'll believe. I did it. Kind of early in my pursuit of Jesus. Um, I quit my job as an engineer, um, went down to Mexico for about four months to care for widows uh, and orphans, mainly orphans, that so we'd go out as well and work at some widows' homes uh, just you know, pure, undefiled religion. And so I'm down there. Um, my job was to take care of what were called the big boys. These are 20-year-old men who could not feed themselves and could not bathe themselves and wore a diaper. So, my job was care and tending for 20 year old men. It was uh, different than engineering, just a little bit. <laughs> Sometimes I did care for 20 year old men as an engineer as well, but not in that way. So, I'm just, it was like, okay. And I really wanted to apply myself. I would get up early and I studied, and I started to run out of ink in my pens. And it seems so trivial now, but in the moment it was huge. Because I'm in Mexico, I'm thinking, look, God, I'm doing all this stuff for you. Here's what I need. My girlfriend at that time, now my wife, Charity, would send me these packages. So one morning, I was noticing, I was running out of ink, and I said, Lord, I want you to have my fiancé, my girlfriend at the time, soon to be fiancé, soon to be wife. I want her, when she sends me a package, to include in that package a three-pack of Bic medium point blue pens. (laughs) Amen. And with all the faith I could muster. In all the belief I had, I just felt like this is going to happen. Well, Thursday's the package came, um, I opened it up, no medium, blue, big pens, no three pack. I thought, okay, okay, God, uh, this package was already in the air when I prayed. (laughs) One more week. Next week, package comes, no three pack of medium point, big pens. And I'll tell you, my faith was crushed. Like, Lord, come on changing a 20-year-old man's diapers. Every morning, I am studying and reading, and I'm pursuing you. I'm taking notes. I'm trying to find my calling in your world, in your kingdom, and you can't do something as simple as this. I'm not asking you to buy them. She'll pay for them for crying out loud. Yeah, it seems so trivial today. I was demanding a sign. About that same time, I lived in this room, and it had about there was beds for 14, so we kind of fluctuate between 10 and 14 men in this room. Just would stink, hot, Mexico days. is unbelievable. One guy refused to shower. He just felt like, you know, filthiness is next to godliness. That was his theology. So just, you know, I'm in there, and I'm just kind of like, uh, teeth set on edge. And this guy comes in one of my roommates like, man, man, I got a bunch of extra pens. Anybody need one? I was like, are they BIC? Blue, medium point? (laughs) Because if not, I'm not taking them. And I just realized in that moment, I can't demand of God. He is not my genie that I get a whack because I've done a certain kind of thing, and he's going to respond to me because it will not work. Philip, after seeing all these miracles for three and a half years, says, Just one more. God, just one more. If Jesus does this, what will happen is... Every single time we have a doubt, we will demand another sign. We're going to want to walk out. I just want my dog to say to me, Matt, this is what you're supposed to do, God. Come on, dog. Come on. I just want to see written in the sky some kind of sign that says, do this, that we're going to demand signs. And all that does to your faith is make it smaller and smaller and smaller. So God knows, I I can't do that. I can't do that to you, Matt. My hiddenness is actually what causes you to grow up and become mature. If you've already made up your mind about me, like the Pharisees and Sadducees, I'm out. But if you truly want to know, I'll give you enough to put your faith in, but no more because it will squash your maturity. So that's this leaven of the Pharisees. And Jesus says, beware of it. Beware of that tendency in us. The hiddenness of God is what actually allows us to grow up into our kingship and our queenship. God is, if you would, allowing us to walk by faith and not by sight, which is what he wants. So then, we looked at this on Sunday. Jesus now launches the church, a brilliant passage. And so, if you weren't here on Sunday, I said, Jesus goes to this location and it's, it's hell on earth, the gates of Hades. It's the temple of Pan, the most um, wicked, sensual place probably in all the land of Israel. The rabbis said to any person that was a Jewish man or Jewish woman, you are not allowed to go to Caesarea Philippi. It's off limits because of this temple the Pan. And I talked about that. PG, bad. Pan means um, everything. He is pansexual, so men, women, beasts, all those things are depicted throughout. Literature with pen, just really, really bad, raunchy, raunchy spot. Red light of Amsterdam. Jesus goes right there and says, this is where I'm building my church. We're in a camp on the gates of hell, and hell will not prevail against my church. You want the church to do well, you find a hell, and you say, I'm camping there. That's when Jesus says, let's go. Let's build there. I am reclaiming what rightfully belongs to me. Those people inside that temple are mine, and I want to reclaim them. It's beautiful. It's brilliant. A couple of quick notes on it. Um, Jesus here, like, goes ballistic, doesn't he? Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood is not revealed to you. Wow, yes, yes, but here's the deal. Jesus has already been called the son of God, Matthew chapter 8, and he's already been called the terms of Messiah. We just saw one last uh, in chapter 15 with the Canaanite woman. So why here does Jesus freak out with Peter? Peter. Why is it like, yes, Peter, that's the confession. Those responses prior to this were emotional responses to a miracle or to Jesus' power. This response is a pure faith confession on Peter's part. And Jesus says, that's what I'm after. I'm not after manipulation. I'm not after emotions. I'm after you to intellectually think about me and know you Are God in the flesh. That's what I'm after. This is really important because it drives a lot of what I do in ministry. So I don't try to manipulate people, especially to get saved. I want a pure faith confession like Peter because I think anything else actually inoculates you against the gospel. And then you say, I tried Jesus and it did not work. No, you were manipulated and you tried something else, but you did not try Jesus and it's getting rampant. There is a giant mega church out on the East Coast that I don't know if it was supposed to get out, but it did get out. It got out this manual they have on how to get more people baptized. And so what they do in their big auditorium, they have a 1,400-seat auditorium, is they plant 20 people up there, and when there's a call for baptism, those 20 people stand up, and they have them just in the right spots. They're told, be emotional. Try, try, try to like hug somebody, do all this kind of stuff, walk very slowly down the steps, show a lot of emotion, because what that will do is it'll cause other people to say, oh, I'll join with you. And if you're up on stage, you're clapping and cheering, you say, yes, come join these that are making a decision right now for Jesus, even though they're not. It's a sham. Those things really make me afraid because I'm convinced Romans 1:16 says, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God and the salvation. Not Matt Heverly, not manipulations, not certain ways I do things, not certain kind of tones I use. That's not going to save anybody. The gospel will. True salvation comes only through the gospel. And Peter here makes a true faith profession, and Jesus just says, yeah. Note number two, Jesus says, I'm going to build my church, and hell will not destroy it. I have that underlined in my Bible. Too often, there's this chicken little mentality about the church. Oh no, the sky is falling. Please read church history. From its conception, the church has been attacked, right? Read Acts chapter five. They are attacked right away. James is killed. Stephen is stoned right? Go through it. Look at Nero, what he did. Look at Domitian, what he did. There were wave after wave of attacks from the Roman empire against the church. You know what happened during those 300 years of attack? The church just grew. They say this, by 350 AD, 50% of the cities of Rome were Christian. I mean, it's never, it's unparalleled in history. It's like they were stamping on the fire of Christianity. It was just sending out sparks and starting more fires. It's incredible. Read Emperor Julian's. He was a really bad emperor. Read his letters where he's writing. He goes, these Galileans, that's what he called them. He didn't know they were Christians. These Galileans, like what in the world? We keep killing them and they just more sprout out of their blood. Like what in the world is going on? I'm not worried about the church. The dark ages, right? Liberalism, social gospel, whatever it is today. I'm not worried. You know why? Because Jesus says, it's my church. My church. Do you know the difference between a renter and an owner? Renters don't really care. Ah, you know, leaky faucet, I don't really care. Ah, dry rot, I don't really care. Owner, oh my goodness, let's fix that. Jesus owns the church and he cares, and he will not allow it to fail. Like my favorite example of this is like, um, when Rome's trying to stamp out the church in those 300 years, Satan like realized this isn't working. And you have some of the, um, just a cascading wave of cults, if you've ever read it. Just cult after cult after cult after cult just starts to spring up, trying to sideline the truth of the gospel. One of them, they're called the Arianists, and they'll later be called the semi-Arianists, and they said this, Jesus isn't God. He's half God and half man. Now, why would they say that? Because they're moving into Greek lands, and doesn't the Greek gods come down all the time and have like relations with women and produce? They're called demigods. Hercules was a demigod, half god, half something else. Look, if we just make Jesus like those guys, he'll be accepted. And so there's this massive council, it's called the Nicene Council, where they had this big discussion, who is Jesus? Are the semi-eranists right? Is he half god, half Jesus? And so this creed, they came up with this word, it's homo oesis, and it means exact. The father and the son are exactly the same. And the semi-eranists raised their hands and wait, 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 wait. Please, in the middle of that word, if you just put an iota, we'll accept it. Because it changes exact to similar. Like the father and the son are similar. And they made the proclamation there. They said, we will not give you one iota. That's where we get it from this day. No, we will not compromise on who Jesus is. And that's the reason the church is still strong. There's this great book by Mark Sayers where he says, when you go liberalize a church, you sign your death certificate. When you stop saying Jesus is God, start making cultural modifications to make it more comfortable, you sign your death warrant. And he just cites these examples throughout history. You never do that. Jesus says, it's my church, and I will build it. I never worry about the future of the church because it's not in my hands. The owner is going to keep it safe. And so then Jesus says, now here's the path forward. I'm going to build this church, and here's how it's going to be built. Here's the path. Verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. (laughs) It's just, you're God. Not that. I mean, it's just, you're so awesome, Peter. (laughs) I cannot believe it be it far from you, Lord. He's even calling him, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Uh, But he turned and he said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So Jesus here says, my path is different than Elijah. I'm not going to go up on the mountain and slay 450 prophets of Baal. I'm going to go up on a mountain and I'm going to die. That's the path I'm taking. Now, this should not have surprised them because throughout the Bible, there is this theme. It's called the wounded victor. It starts in Genesis 3.15, right? The seed of the woman is going to crush the serpent's head, but the serpent will bruise his heel. The serpent's going to bite him. There's going to be venom stuck into this one that's coming, this coming seed, right? Then you get these examples of them. Joseph, wounded victor, right? Thrown into a pit, sold into slavery, accused of rape, thrown into prison, just wounded deeply, and then victorious. Moses, 40 years in exile, wounded, comes back victorious. Like it's throughout the entire Bible. Jonah, another example, right? Wounded, thrown into the belly of a whale for three days, barfed up, and then he has victory wounded, victor. Isaiah 53, read that. It's a poem about Jesus Christ. All that's going to happen, crushed, despised more than any man, marred more than anyone else. But then there's these hints of, but he's going to rule, but he's going to bring righteousness, but he's going to take the spoils of the enemy. On the other side, you have in this, this tension of, ah, but there's going to be victory. Yeah, cut off, yes, killed, but there's somehow victory in that death. Isaiah 11, it's called um, it's where we get the, the, the root of Jesse. So you have there this analogy of a stump of Jesse. Who's Jesse? David's dad. So what that's saying is, the, the, the line of kings has been cut off. the Davidic line that was prophesied to have a one that would come and rule forever. It's been cut off. It's just a stump now, the family tree's gone. But then Isaiah 11 says, a sprout, it's literally a netzer, from where we get the word Nazareth, a netzer will come out. There's hope. There's life. Something new is coming. Wounded, cut off. But somehow out of that, victory comes a a, a netzer, a, a sprout comes out. So if they're reading the Bible, they would see, wait a second, this makes sense. But they don't. And so instead, Jesus gives to Peter the worst rebuke he gives to anybody in Scripture, even worse than Judas." There is nothing like this that Jesus ever does anywhere else. Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. That is hardcore. There is no rebuke like this anywhere else in the life of Jesus. Why does he do this? Because his greatest work was at stake. God's greatest work is not creation or even new creation. He speaks those things, and they become. God's greatest work is redemption. It's from Genesis 3 to Revelation 20. The majority of the Bible, except for just a few chapters at the beginning and a few chapters at the end, the majority of the story of God is I'm redeeming people through my death. And so Satan, through Peter, is attacking the most important work of God, and Jesus says, no way. Sometimes there are legitimate reasons to rebuke somebody. You are attacking a core cardinal thing of Jesus, rebuked. Now, who does he rebuke? Is it Peter? Or is it Satan? Who says it's Peter? Who says it's Satan? I say it's both. I mean, how can you? It says, but he turned and said to Peter, "Get behind me, Satan!" It's both somehow. Both are included. All right. If if you start to move away from the proper understanding of Satan's work, look out. Can Satan? influence a confessing believer in jesus christ oh absolutely it's right here peter right he is confessing faith in jesus christ just like any old testament person abraham moses whoever it is david they had faith forward in messiah that's the same faith peter has right here i believe you're messiah i believe you're the king i believe you're god right he is a confessing believer in jesus christ is he being influenced by satan oh totally it's as if it's Satan's natural weaknesses that Satan begins to exploit. Right? Satan or, or Peter's always the first one to just blurt something out. He has not taken James 1.19 to heart. Be slow to speak. He doesn't know that. So what does Satan do? Satan uses that natural predisposition of Peter. He hasn't roped that in yet. He has not got his tongue under control. So Satan uses that, amplifies it, and attacks Jesus. And he does the same thing today. He did the same thing. Well, this is before the death, burial, resurrection. the give me the Holy Spirit. Okay? Read Galatians 2.14. Peter gets rebuked again, this time by Paul. You're dividing the church by what you're doing. Paul talks about being hindered, same word, hindered by Satan in 1 Thessalonians 2.18. Why is this so important, Matt? Here's why. If you stop believing in demons or that realm you will start demonizing people. So Jesus here rightly groups them together. Hey, you're in partnership right now. You made some decision to allow now evil to use you. You're in partnership. And I understand there's two sides to it. But if you stop believing in demons, you'll always demonize people. They're evil. They're bad. They're, well, wait a second. Remember, there's a serpent that's biting. The rumors is there's a serpent who is inciting, who's wrapped around our hearts. Remember that. Never forget that. Because then people aren't just lying to you. They are liars. People didn't just cheat on you. They are cheaters. You demonize them. Be very aware of that. There is a spiritual realm. And we have to remember that because it protects us from demonizing people. So it's both a partnership. All right? So then Jesus adds something else. Now, what's Peter's big problem? One final thing. Why is he saying this? Because his, um, his perception of what he wanted Jesus to be is under attack, right? He did not want a wounded victor. He wanted a conquering king. And when his idea of what Jesus is supposed to be is, comes under attack, he freaks out. Never Close your mind to who Jesus is. Always allow scripture to be reforming. The reformers were were always reforming our understanding of Jesus, and we're never arriving until we get to heaven. Always allow Jesus to be bigger. Remember the uh, story of uh, the the Chronicles of Narnia? Lucy, she she meets Aslan, and then a a while later she meets Aslan again. What does she say? My, you've grown bigger. And what what does Aslan say? No, you have right? I'm not bigger. You just have a better perception of what I am and and what I'm capable of doing and who I am. Jesus never stops growing. He should never stop growing to us. He should get more and more brilliant as each day goes by. But Peter wanted to freeze him. Here's what I want you to be. Wrong. All right. So now Jesus says this, not only is this my path, it's your path as well. Verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, According to what he has done. Verse 28, I feel should be with verse chapter 17. We'll do that next Wednesday. Jesus says, my path is death, and your path is denial as well. You have to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. This is the path to maturity. A mature Christian understands, this is my path. Deny, cross, and follow. What kills a church is selfishness. The elevation of me, my importance, me. You want to kill a church? Make it all about you. You want a church to thrive and grow and get bigger and stronger? Then you deny yourself, take up your cross, And you follow him. That's what it's to be all about. We live in a society right now that shuns any kind of denial of self, any kind of pain or suffering, right? Like we have unbelievable medication that takes away any pain. And what's the problem with it right now? It's an epidemic. Because now people don't want to feel anything. I don't want any denial. I don't want any pain. I just want to feel good all the time, right? It's really going back to what Peter was about. You are, this is what Jesus says about him. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. The things of God are character. Matt, I'm going to do whatever is necessary for you, for you to become brilliant. The things of man are comfort. I just want to be comfortable. I just want to binge on Netflix. I just want to sit around. Come on, God, just leave me alone. What do you miss in that moment when you don't deny yourself, when you don't do those things? You miss the very metal that God wants to build into every single one of our souls. There's a great book on this. It's called The Cradles of Eminence. Two researchers looked into the lives of 300 of the most influential people they could find. right? The big names, Einstein. FDR, Clara Barton, you name it. The who's who. And they said, what's the cradle, what what was the beginning of this person's life that shaped them in such a way that they could really change the world? Here's what they found. I'll give you the statistics. Three quarters of them grew up in poverty or with really bad parents. Like not Jude and Warren Cleaver, but Al and Ted Bundy. Or Al and, not Ted, (laughs) Al and Peggy. (laughs) Al Bundy. That might be a bad parent. Ted Bundy. What'd you do tonight? Oh, I killed a couple people. Ah, good for you. Right? Quarter of them, physical handicaps. Just, the, the list is unbelievable. And what they said was this. The end of it was so fascinating. They said, it is not a hard life that matters. It's how you handle the hardship that matters. Does it wear you down and you give up? Or does it make you into something amazing? We have an aversion to that today. I was over at the coast and we had some young people with us, and one of them was like, I got a little headache. Do you have some Tylenol? I thought, man, isn't that just like us? Just the slightest little discomfort. I got gotta take pain, right? Birth. We have mastered birth, have we not, with the epidural? I'm pretty sure I'm I don't know my <laughs> fact. My wife, five kids naturally. After birth, one, I said, you should take an epidural. If you don't, I'm going to, right? I mean, brutal. We've just, we just we are amazing at this thing. And yet Jesus says, it is the denial of self. It's the cross. The cross is not a fun place. That's what this thing is all about. My favorite verse on this is Jeremiah 12:5, where if you know Jeremiah's story, he, he like feels like God has promised him something, and then God took it away from him. And so he's in this complaining mode, and actually goes from about chapter nine all the up to chapter 23. Like, there's just this kind of back and forth, like, ah. And so in chapter 12, verse 5, God just lays it out for him and says this. Listen, Jeremiah, if running with the footman has worried you, how are you ever going to run with horses? I love that. Jeremiah wants you to do something unbelievable. Nobody runs with horses. I've tried to catch a horse before. You can't. And so God is saying, Jeremiah, this is just prep, man. I want you to do something unbelievable. I want you to run with horses. But listen it's going to take some pain. It's going to take some cross. It's going to take some denial of self, but the end version of you is unbelievable. And so try to get this one point and I'm done. Jesus is not saying, just deny yourself. That's Buddhism. Just deny yourself. Don't enjoy anything. He's not saying that, does he? He says, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. It's not just denial of self. It's, You're denying yourself because you have a much higher transcendent idea of what life is about. It's about pursuit of me. So it's not just, hey, deny yourself. Jesus is not saying, I'm going to suffer and die so you don't have to suffer, right? He's not saying that. Here's what Jesus is saying. I'm going to suffer so that when you suffer, you'll become like me. That's what he's saying here. You're going to follow me and you're going to be conformed to my same image. Your suffering will not be lost. It will not be wasted. It will be used to make a metal in you that's going to last for eternity. And when you understand that, you say, okay, let's go. When you understand that, you say, I want to run with horses. I want to park in front of the gates of hell, and I know it's going to be hot. I know it's going to be hard, but I want to park there because that's where metal's made. That's where I want to be. And you start getting the big mission of the church. That's the mission. Make metal people and invade the very gates of hell, reclaiming those that belong to Jesus Christ. That's what it's about. Today, I was on the phone for uh, quite a while with a guy from Portland, a really great guy, and we were talking about foster parenting, and he's foster parenting, and we've done some foster parenting, and, and he said, well, what do you think about it? And I said, it is the best of times, and it is the worst of times. I said, I've seen the face of Jesus. But I've also seen him foster care of the face of Satan. You see them both right there. And I said, I would never give it up because that's where metal's made, right there. I want to see Jesus, and I want to see the gates of Hades closed. That's where it's at. And so, Father, help us on this journey. We need you. I pray as we partake of the elements, I pray that we would once again realize That we are to be Christians, little Christs, denying ourselves, taking up our crosses, and following you. Because wherever you go is a great destination. Where our king is, is where we want to be. You are the good shepherd. You lead us to green pastures and to still waters. I pray for any in here that may be wrestling maybe with doubt and demanding a sign. I pray that they would know God will give them enough, give you enough, but never too much. I pray for any in here that may be going through great difficulty, a cross, weighted, burdened, overwhelmed. I pray that they would realize that you are the perfect creator, that you know the perfect temperature, that you know the right situation, you know the right blend of joy and sorrow, happiness and difficulty that creates in each one of us our destiny. May we trust you so much more. And so may we partake in the remembrance of your death and the anticipation of your return, that you started a kingdom, you started church that the gates of hell will not prevail against, but it will win because you have crushed the serpent's head and we're in mop-up duty, Lord. So help us see those big pictures. Help us be those that, that love you. Not because of a miracle that you give us. We love you because of who you are, because you are beautiful. May it be out of worship, adoration that our service flows. May we be real worshipers. So I pray as we partake that we'd have those things happen. We'd take up our cross, denying ourselves, and we'd follow you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you hold the elements? We will take them together. Thank you. When I was in Israel, we went to this. It was a messianic, charismatic, Episcopalian church. (laughs) I had to go just for that reason. I'm like, what in the world is that? I'm going there. (laughs) And uh, in those churches, the entire service drives to communion. That's their high point. And you go up there, and it's the one cup (laughs) that... 200 people have drank off. You're like, oh, my goodness. I like these cups. (laughs) Father, I thank you for the unspeakable gift of your son. I pray for us as a community of faith, pursuers of you. I pray as we partake, Lord, I ask that the word would would become flesh, that we would have that embodied remembrance of not just your death, but also your life, that you are the returning king. We're to do this in remembrance, remembering your death until you return. It's both of those things, that you are the wounded victor. You are the one that gave everything. Everything because of your great love for us and you're going to return. And so we celebrate this day that we have been grafted into this great story that you've written. That we get strength from the past and from the people that are here right now. That we all partake of this one loaf. And so I ask Lord, as we eat, I pray that you would empower us, abide in us, engage us, purify us, do all those things that only you can do. And we celebrate our forgiveness. That we have a brand new identity, not as the broken, beat up people. We have a new identity as saints, as the redeemed, as the adopted sons and daughters of King Jesus, as those that are sanctified, set apart for your purposes, set apart for your usefulness, set apart for your love. That's who we are now. And so we drink in celebration of the new wine that you poured into us. Let's drink together. And so I ask, Lord, that we would go from here Plugging the gates of hell. Being used by you to reclaim what rightfully belongs to you. As we deny ourselves, take up our crosses, and follow you. So empower us by your spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys.